Am I forgetting everything? Uh, all the announcements done? Oh, offering. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> we're going to do that. Um, hey, um, we're going to take an offering, which is what we do every week. Uh, this is something that um, it just helps keep the lights on. Um, just want to say that um, Thrive is not a church. It doesn't replace church. And so um, your priority ought to be to be giving to your local church. Um, however, if you are uh, just have it on your heart to support Thrive, that's great as well. And uh, while that's going around, um, just, man, it's so good to see everyone here. I just don't know where everyone has come from tonight. There's so many people here and so many new people here tonight. Um, just so encouraging. I mean, um, I just think of what Maria shared. Um, and, man, just what an amazing demonstration that, like, God is in um, the inviting. God is in every single, per, you know, encounter uh, that, that happens between you guys during the week, um, reaching out and, and, and encouraging each other. Um, Man, young adulthood, this, this window that we are in from 18 to 30, give or take, is probably one of the most challenging windows of life when it comes especially to finding community and to finding things to root you and ground you in Christ. Um, we need each other. Um, you know, the Bible says that, that we're, we're members of a body. No, that, that means that no one of us is an island. No one of us is a lone wolf. Um, so I just want to encourage you all. Like Maria talked about the parable of the lost sheep. If, if, if even as you hear her say that, you think of people that, that you know in your life who are out of community right now, who don't have other believers who are encouraging them, pouring into them, you know, regardless of whether or not you, you would invite them here, just consider like grabbing coffee with them, encouraging them, um, because, you know, had it not been for someone 10 years ago, give or take, who did that to me, I would not be standing here. Okay, so stepping off my soapbox. And stepping into uh, the book of Romans. So, uh, some of you might know we've been in the series on the book of Romans, and tonight we come to the climax. Um, tonight we're going to be looking at the very last part of Romans chapter 8. And this chapter has been called the Mount Everest of Scripture. There are a few chapters in the Bible that are more powerful and more filled with truth about who God is and his love for, for us. And so, man, I, just, I, I, I want to really encourage you to, to follow along, listen carefully, grab a Bible. This is, this is probably one of the most powerful chapters in Scripture, and I just, I just have such a burden that God would communicate what's in this chapter to every single one of us. So, um, we're in Romans chapter 8, and, and just as we get going, I want to give just a really quick flyby, flyby a play-by-play -play of just of where we've been so far. The first section of this book is, a book, is, is the section about chapters 1 through 3. This is the section about the problem of sin. Why does there need to be a gospel anyway? The book of Romans is a book that's all about the gospel. The key verse is that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The first chapter is about why there's the need for that gospel at all. Chapter 1, all about the way that pagans need the gospel. Chapter 2, all about how religious people need the gospel. Sometimes Christians are the ones who need the gospel the most. Chapter 3, on to the chapter we're looking at tonight, that's, that, that's the solution. If sin is the problem, the gospel is the solution. The first few of those chapters, 3 through 5, all about the, this big theological word, justification. How God has made us right with him, and how, as God, God has been able to bring salvation to the human race, despite the fact that we are sinners. And how on the cross of Christ, God showed himself able to be both the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus, while at the same time upholding his justice. Chapters 6 through 7, I do remember what the theme of those chapters were. I should, you, you, I should be relying on you guys, not the, giving you guys a break here. You guys have uh, been here for all this. Uh, 6 and 7, 
I know some of you know you're just being shy. Wait, what was that over there? Yeah, uh, well, so uh, sanctification, yeah, so I, I was kind of, you know, cheating, looking for that, that, that kind of big theological word, sanctification. So, 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 okay, you know, like, you're a Christian, well, but how do you actually, like, practically live on a day-to-day basis? How does the gospel change you? Chapter 6 is all about the right way to grow in Christ. Chapter 7, all about the wrong way to grow in Christ. Chapter 6, all about keeping your eyes on Jesus. Chapter 7 is what happens when you get your eyes caught up on yourself. And then finally, this chapter, chapter 8, which we're looking at, uh, the the big theological term here is the word glorification. So if justification is kind of like past tense salvation, what God already has done to bring forgiveness of sin, and and if sanctification is sort of present tense salvation, what God is doing now to make us look more like Jesus, glorification is like future tense salvation, what is ahead of uh, for us, uh, for all of us who know Jesus and, and have put our faith in him. So we're looking at the, the last part of chapter 8 where it comes to the climax of what that word glorification is all about. And so what I'm going to do here, I'm just going to read this passage. Um, it's Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. And I'm just going to make a few comments on it here. So Romans 8, 28 through 39. And we know... That in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Wow. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. (laughs) Is right. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you just open up this amazing passage to us? Um, Father, man, just, um, I just pray that you would just get me, the human being, out of the way, and I just ask that you would just use um, this time and these words um, to just help us, help us see um, who you are and the great, great love that you've shown us um, through what Jesus did on the cross. And it's in his name I pray, amen. Um, so guys, all I want to do, I just, um, I like to give a roadmap just so you guys know where I'm going. Um, I'm just going two places tonight, and you know, who knows? 
there's such a thing as the Holy Spirit, maybe he'll make me go three places rather than four. We'll see. Rather than two. But the, the two places I think I'm going to go tonight, they both start with P. The first one is uh, that the first couple of verses of this chapter give a purpose that God has for humanity. So purpose. And then the second part of, this cha- of these verses gives you a promise about that purpose. So there's a purpose, and then there's a promise. And I want to start by looking at the purpose. Now, now, let me just give a little bit of context here. So last week, if you were here, um, the, 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 the wonderful, splendid, just, just total lovely chap of a guy, Dustin Pauly, Thrive Kids Have Director, was here speaking on the, the verses before this. Um, and the verses before this, um, just kind of give a little context for where we are. If you go back to verse 18, which is where Dustin uh, started from last week, it's, it's where Paul is saying that because of what Jesus has done, you know, no matter how much suffering we're, we're currently going through in life, um, the, the point is that there awaits for us this, this huge, just like incalculable glory ahead of us. Which is why, like, if you're here tonight and you're a Christian, there is hope. There is hope. I mean, if you um, are struggling with depression, if you're struggling with, with suicidal thoughts, if you're struggling with, with anything at all, there's hope. There's hope. And I think you'll, you'll see that as we go through this, this passage tonight. But, but one of the things um, that we talked about last week is that one aspect of that hope that Paul describes in, in around verse 18 is that the, 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 the future glorification that we're looking forward to is actually something that is so big and so cosmic, it actually affects all of creation. Now, this is, this is a crazy thought because, I mean, imagine the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen. You know, or like imagine the most beautiful like mountain or cliff or river or beach or just like experience out in nature. And in Romans 8, Paul says the creation is in bondage right now. That all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And you look at that and you just think to yourself, if this is how beautiful the world is now, I mean, what on earth is it going to look like when Jesus comes back and it's set free from its bondage? Holy cow. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Any, any nature lovers out here? Yeah, I was just uh, backpacking this last weekend. And I was like, wow, God's creation is beautiful. And, by the way, this is why this Washington, I think, is better than the other Washington. We have all the best nature here. So, but I shouldn't boast. Boasting is not good. <laughs> so, so th- th- that, you know, like, that's sort of the, where we were last week. And it's, that's looking at one aspect of, of what the coming glory that's promised in Scripture means. It means something for all of creation. But here in this passage, it gets at what the heart of glorification is and has everything to do with God's plan for humanity. The first verse in our passage tonight has got to be one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. It's Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now let's just do some Bible study on that verse. You know, I know that there's a group of women at Thrive who have been doing inductive study of the Bible, where, like, you go through, like, like, a verse or a passage, and you ask, like, you know, who is this talking about? What is this, you know, what's being talked about here? Where did it happen? When? Oh, so good, so good. If, if, if you are, if you are, um, if, if you want to be cool, you should be, like, those cool, uh, cool members of Thrive, and you should, you should do what they are doing. Okay, back off my soapbox. But let's just do some Bible study on this verse. So, so look at what this says. It says, those who love God have been called according to his purpose. So what, what we find out here is that God has a purpose. And that purpose includes God calling. That's the word, call. Well, whom does God call? 
Well, if you look at the verse, it says that those who have been called are those who love him. Or if you wanted to, to, to put another word to that, that, that refers to believers. So God's purpose includes us. It includes calling believers. Now, now, now one thing this means is that if God has called believers to be a part of his purpose, you know, kind of the corollary of that is that your life has a purpose. That your life is not just some kind of cosmic accident. That, that you're not here for no reason. And that, that contrary to what, like, even what some of our most reputable scientists will tell you, there is way more to life than just a bunch of random molecules that somehow smashed into each other and have created this. And I, you know, I'm not going to get into that whole, you know, creation, evolution debate, but my point is, your life has a purpose. And if you ha have stopped believing that, I just want you to see this verse that says, God has a purpose, we are a part of that purpose, therefore our life has a purpose. So what is it? <laughs> like, what is the purpose? What is the call that believers are called to? Well, if you scroll down to the next two verses, 29 and 30, let me look at those here. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called, those he called, there's that word call again, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. So, so there, there's your word call in verse 30 that links back up to verse 28. And it says that those who are called are those who have been predestined. Now, I need everyone to take a deep breath. Because, <gasps> you know, some of you, you see that word predestined and you're like, oh my gosh. I've got to like cover myself, you know, put up my shield. All the Calvinists are going to come out kicking and screaming. And, and, you know, if Jeremiah was here, he and Devante would get up on stage right now and do a, you know, a rap battle about that. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, I actually was thinking to myself, I've been, uh, through, uh, through Amanda's influence in my life, I've been listening to a little bit more Hamilton recently than usual. Any Hamilton fans in here? And, uh, you know, the Cabinet Battle songs. I was thinking, you know, it'd be really fun to write like, a, like some sort of, you know, parody of that. That's, you know, like Calvinism versus Arminianism. But anyway, some of you guys probably don't even know or care what I'm talking about. You don't just, whatever. <laughs> Okay, so, so, so don't worry about that word predestined. We're actually going to come back and probably talk about that word when we look at Romans 9. So just, you know, there it is. But, but let, me just, let me just give you a definition of what that word means because it's important here. For now, just take that word as a word that means decided by God beforehand. So what that means is that when God calls people, he's calling people to something that he decided beforehand would be the case. And what is that? What, is, you know, what, what, what did God decide beforehand was going to be the end, the outcome, you know, of all who follow Jesus. And now, thanks for taking it with me, here's, here is the point. Here is, is the purpose that God has for humanity. Verse 29, God predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. God predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his son. This is it. What God wants, what we were made for, is that when all is said and done, that we would be made like Jesus. And if you want to just sort of, you know, t to have a few more verses that um, could give you proof of that, just if, if, if you want to just take these, these references down, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory. This is the heart of what that word glorification means. Now pause. 
think about what this is saying. I mean, I, to be honest, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking to myself, it's a little bit hard for me to actually like, get inside what this is talking about. Like when it says that, that we are to be conformed, that God will conform us to the likeness of Jesus, I mean, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't getting it. I had to like spend a lot of time kind of chewing on this and trying to get inside what this is about. What, you know, so, 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 I don't know what this kind of makes you think of, um, but, but what I want to start with is I want to show you one thing that this is not. When it says that, that we will be perfectly conformed to the likeness of Jesus, what that does not mean is it does not mean that God's burning desire for believers is that we would merely be moral people. So, I was just talking, where's Matthew? Matthew, are you here? I don't know, Matthew, you're probably here somewhere. I was talking to Matthew tonight, and Matthew was asking me about where I went to college, uh, and uh, answer to that question, I went to Whitworth University. I see Haley Williams, another Whitworth alum. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and um, Whitworth is a great, great school. Um, I just, you know, I'm going to just uh, name that, that, that fact right now. But, uh, but, but, but I, I am going to kind of like just say a few things that might make you just, you know, kind of make me think I don't love my school. I do love my school. Um, but, but, but here's the point. Here's the point. I went to a Christian college, you know, and so this was not a place where every single person had to be a Christian. Probably about, you know, maybe two-thirds, would you guys say, of people who go there are believers. Maybe one-third aren't. Um, hard, hard to know. But, but whenever you throw together, like, a bunch of, of, of you know, what is it, 18 to 22-year-olds, that's, you know, age of people on a college campus, uh, you know, and you're trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus. I mean, that obviously is going to be a messy thing. I mean, and believe me, I know, because I'm not only uh, kind of still trying to figure out that whole mess uh, in my own life of what that looks like to follow Jesus, but I was, you know, I was there. I was a student, um, and so I, I, I remember going through that myself, and, 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 inevitably, and inevitably, there's going to be just a lot of uh, challenge and dysfunction in trying to figure out what that actually looks like. And, and, and here, I would think, is one area of dysfunction that I remember observing, both in myself and in others, when I was in college. And the dysfunction was that at times it seemed as though following Jesus was merely being nice. So let me give you some examples of this. Like, if you were, were a student at Whitworth, you could, like, leave your laptop around just about anywhere. You know, you'd never have to worry about it being stolen. You know, like, guys would always hold open the door for girls. And, uh, you know, some people didn't like that, depending on sort of your leanings on different issues. You know, cursing per capita was probably half the national average. You know, I don't know. I just made that up. But, you know, people would say please and thank you. Like, there are a lot of really, really nice people. But look, it, it got to the extent that if you were not a Christian, then all you had to do was just learn a bunch of behaviors and put on this mask, and everyone would think you're a Christian. And, and, and it was sort of a way just to sort of avoid the whole thing. If you wanted to kind of fly under the radar, not have people bother you about it, just, you know, hold the door for people and say please and thank you. And people are probably like, oh, that guy, oh, total believer. But man, like, it is so much more than that. It is so much more than that. I mean, <laughs> did you know that if you want to avoid God, one of the best ways to do that is to be a moral person? Because morality is very often an idol that you can trust in so that you say to yourself, I don't need God. And when the Bible says that God wants to conform us to the image of his son, 
God's burning passion is not just that we would be nice. I mean, goodness knows that niceness is important, but man, one of the reasons I believe that Christianity is weak in certain parts of the world, including, I think, some parts of our own country, is that we've reduced Christianity to just being nice. There's a verse in the Bible that talks about those who have a form of godliness deny its power. God's desire for believers is that they would be conformed to his son. God did not go from heaven to earth just to make bad people good. He came into the world to make dead people live. I mean, if God had wanted to just make us moral people, he would have given us a rule book so that we could have so, so that we could change ourselves from the outside in. But that's not what he wanted. He wanted Jesus' people. And so he gave us the Holy Spirit so that he could change us from the inside out. And so what that means is that the sum of glorification, God's purpose for all humanity, is not that we would resemble a, a set of particular practices, but that we would resemble a particular person. And I, I want to ask you, what do you think about when you think about being made like Jesus? You know, one way that, that I, I saw someone answer this question was that, you know, when people say they want to become more like Jesus, they usually mean they want to become a moral person. And, I, you know, I've already said that, that God's purpose is, is, not just, is not that we would just be moral people. Um, and, and, of course, like, there, there is an aspect to that. One of, one of the great, great things about this promise in Scripture is that, that, that God will make us moral people. That, that, that when we are made like Jesus, there will be no more sin. You know, I had a friend of mine who I once asked, like, what are you most looking forward to about heaven? And he said, no more sin. No more sin. I mean, talk about an encouraging thought. Given all the things that we may struggle with or be tempted with or be completely stuck in, like, even at this moment, the promise of this is that there will be a day where we will not sin where every temptation that has ever plagued you will just be completely gone. But, but the language goes beyond that. So, so look at this here. You know, it goes beyond the language of just doing things. Um, because in, in verse 29, what it says is not only that God will conform us to the likeness of his son, but that this is so, he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's like a purpose clause in here. Now, now think of what it would mean for this to be true. This is more than simply doing or not doing. Morality is a matter of doing or not doing. But to be made a brother or sister of Jesus, that's a matter of being. You know, if you wanted to use some philosophical words, it's not merely ethical, it's ontological. It means that, that God wants to take not just Jesus' behavior, but he wants to take Jesus' very nature and hardwire that nature into each and every one of us. <laughs> now, this is where it just gets so amazing to me. Think, think about this. Like, what would it mean to have God's very nature perfectly woven into the fabric of your personality? So in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God calls himself the spring of living water. Now, now if you think about a spring, like a spring is something where water gushes out. You know, it's not like you have to kind of stick a bucket down there and go to all this effort to pull it out. Like the spring, it's just like it just, just bubbles up on its own. You know, a spring always gives a spring never takes, and a spring never runs out. Now, God is saying, I am like a fountain. Now, why would God say that? In fact, he, he actually, you know, if you remember like seventh grade English, the difference between metaphors and similes, you know, simile like or as, and, and metaphor is like, you know, it is this thing. 
Well, he actually, I, I think this is a metaphor here. He calls himself a spring of living water. So he, he's basically saying, like, I am a fountain. Like, I literally am a fountain. Why does he say this? Because that's what he is. First John chapter 4, God is love. Which was, so think about what love means. Think about what that verse means. Love is outgoing. It means to give life. It means to share life. And, and that means because God is love, God's very nature is one of ever-growing, ever-filling, ever-spreading, never-failing love. And just like a fountain, like it endlessly gushes out of him without a single shadow or shred of selfishness, of stinginess, or barrenness. I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, have you ever thought about God in this way? <laughs> There's a verse in one of the Psalms that says, He is my rock and there is no wickedness in him. This is the kind of God we serve. But now think about, think about your own life. I mean, let me ask you, do you find yourself living this way? And of course, the answer is, we can probably all shamelessly say, probably not. <laughs> because in, in reality, I think for myself, um, life is oftentimes more like a drain than a fountain. I mean, drains suck things into themselves. Fountains spout life out of themselves. And, and which kind of person would you rather be? You know, would you rather want to be around? I mean, everyone probably knows what it's like. Um, in, in fact, we even use that word, like a draining person. And I'm not trying to, you know, <laughs> slap anyone with that label. I'm just saying, like, man, that is like, uh, that's, that's a part of the English language. That's what we say. This is, this, is, this is what sin is. Martin Luther says that sin is man turned in on himself. And man, like, don't you long to be set free from that? <laughs> like, don't you just deep down long to be set free from constantly needing and wanting and sucking life from other people rather than giving and sharing and cultivating life in those around you? Like, don't you long to be a fountain rather than a drain? Sin makes you a drain. The principle of sin is my life for me. You know, it's all about me, just like your life is all about serving me. But Jesus is the opposite. Like, and Jesus makes us fountains like he is. He says, my life for yours. My life for yours. And what's so cool about this is that this, paradoxically, this is where beauty comes from. Beauty comes from death. Beauty comes from laying down your own life for the sake of another's life. I mean, what can be more beautiful than a new birth? You know, I don't know if you guys see Brio who was wandering around here. Now, this is a little scary. So, Brio is the son of two Thrive alums who are both here tonight. And, uh, man, it's a little crazy to think that, like, some of us are at that stage of, like, having kids. Holy smokes. <laughs> but, 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 man, like, Brio, he's, like, the cutest little kid ever. Every time I see him, my, my day just gets so much better. And, and, but, but, like, it kind of points to this fact that, like, there's nothing more beautiful than seeing new birth, seeing new life. But think about this. Here, here's how one Christian writer says this, that no child has ever received life except through the laying down of the mother's life and bearing and nourishing him. And somebody has to lay down his or her life to care for and train for and provide for children year after year. Or, you know, think about, like, what could be more beautiful than the wonders of the natural world? You know, so, like, the most beautiful sunset you've seen, um, you know, all, all these things we were talking about earlier. Just, just imagine that and, and think to yourself, like, why, why do those things exist? How have those things come to be? The reason those things exist, the reason those things have come to be is because God created. I mean, in other words, God didn't keep himself to himself. God shared his goodness through creating humanity and through creating the world. God did not have to do that. 
I mean, it wasn't that God was lonely and he needed to make some friends. Like, God is Trinity. Like, from all eternity, the, the Father, the Son, the Spirit have been loving each other back and forth, back and forth. Back. So he didn't need to make everything because he was lonely. It was out of the overflow of his love. The reason that nature is beautiful is because it's an expression of God giving himself away. And if that's the kind of beauty that erupts from God's heart, I mean, do you think about that? Like, imagine the most beautiful scene in the natural world you've ever seen. And have you ever thought about that, like, springing out of the heart of God? If that is a taste of the kind of love that flows from the fountain of his life, imagine his life become your life. Imagine yourself conformed to the image and nature of Christ, no longer a drain, but a fountain. No longer the aroma of death, but of life, and no longer a marred canvas, but a breathtaking masterpiece. And, and man, the message of Romans 8 is that this is what lies in store for us. And this is what we were made for. At the very end of, of, of probably his, one of his best books, C.S. Lewis says that the more we get to know what we now call ourselves, the, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs you know, in other words, Christians conformed to the likeness of Jesus. There's so much of him that millions and millions of little Christs, all different, will still be too few to express him fully. He made them all. He invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different men that you and I were intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to be myself without him. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. What are we going to say to him when we finally stand on the shore of eternity and see the fullness of what he purchased on the cross? I mean, when, when we finally see the, 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 the finished design that God had always had in his mind for us. I mean, man, like, I think when Jesus speaks of coming so that they might have life and have it to the full, is this not the kind of life that I believe he promised? This passage starts out with a purpose. It's saying that all of creation, all of, all of God's plan and purpose is, is, is driving toward the day when we will be conformed to the image of Jesus. And oh my goodness, is that way more than simply behaving a certain way and doing all the right things. It's having the very nature of a God who is love woven into the very warp and woof of who we are. So that's the first part of this passage. The second part of this passage, um, now it refers to the promise about the purpose. So the first part's about the purpose, the second part's about the promise about the purpose. And man, like, as if it couldn't get any better. <laughs> Verses 31 to 39 comes a promise that essentially you could call an assurance. Because here's the question. Like, how do we actually know that all of this amazing stuff that we've just been talking about is actually going to come true? How do we know that? I mean, like, you can, you know, get a, I don't know if anyone's applying to college here. Like, you can get an acceptance letter to a college, and then, like, find out that, oh, you know, they made an error, and you actually, you know, like, stuff like that happens. You know, how do we know 
the, 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 the promises and the purposes and the amazing things that are held out in the gospel, how do we know that those things will actually finally truly come to be, that we actually will stand on eternity short and cross the finish line? And that is exactly how Paul concludes this whole section here at the end of Romans 8. And the promise is, I'll just give you my thesis here. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to kind of, you know, let that drop gradually. But here, here it is. That there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. So check this out. Verse 35. Because of God's sovereignty, no circumstance can separate us from God's love. So verse 35, Paul starts making this search. He goes throughout the entire, you know, universe, basically, in search of any possible thing that could separate us from the love of God in light of the gospel. And so he starts out with these circumstances. He says, can trouble, can, can trouble separate us from God? Can hardship, can, can persecution or famine or, or nakedness or danger or sword Paul's conclusion, there is no circumstance that can separate us from God's love. And, and back in verse 28, he's actually already given you the reason why. Let me read this one more time. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this verse is the Bible's classic statement that the reason that no circumstance can separate us from the love of God is that because of God's sovereignty, in other words, like God's control of everything that happens, nothing escapes his, his plan, his purpose, that always in every area, God is sovereignly taking all the details of our lives, and he's working them together for good, even though we may almost never see the full picture of how this works. Now, uh, there's a, it, it was recently pointed out to me in a message that um, there's, there's a really fascinating place in the Bible where you actually see this take place, and it's tied to a little, tiny, little, you know, throwaway Old Testament place called Dothan. In this little place called Dothan, there are at least two stories that take place here in the Bible. One is in, the story, I think it's uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, where Elisha, one of these, these Old Testament prophets, is being surrounded by this army of people who are trying to take him captive. And, you know, it looks like, you know, the guy is a goner. But, but <clears throat> God tells Elisha, you know, to, 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 to instruct his servant, you know, uh, open up your eyes and look and see that there are more with us than there are with them. And the servant opens up his eyes, he sees all on the hillside, just these chariots of fire that God has provided to rescue Elisha, and Elisha is spared. Now, this happens in Dothan. Now, there's another event that happens in Dothan hundreds of years earlier, and it's in the story of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, this is where Joseph is conspired against by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold to these slave traders and brought to the land of Egypt. You know, and there's Joseph in the pit, like he's crying out to God, you know, oh God, please rescue me. And God doesn't, doesn't do it. Now, now, now think about this. We have almost two identical situations. In one story, you know, Joseph cries out to God. In one story, Elisha cries out to God. In the same place, one time God answers, one time God doesn't. But if you know the story of Joseph, the fact that God did not answer Joseph is precisely the means that God uses to rescue not just Joseph, but his entire family. And it's on that account that we have Jesus, the Messiah, who came from that family line. So, so, did Joseph know that? Of course Joseph didn't know that. <laughs> very, very often, we, 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 we don't actually see how the, the truth of verse 28 actually comes true. 
but it does. And one day, one of the coolest things, I think, about, about finally being on the shore of eternity is being able to look back and see all the ways that all things that have ever happened at all, biggest thing, smallest thing, all of those things, God has taken and, working toge- and worked together for good. And if the principle of God's sovereignty is true, then what that means is that you're not powerful enough to mess up your own life. I mean, good gracious, like I have had the opportunity to do that. And by the grace of God, I'm still here. So, so, so the, the, the story that comes to mind when I think about this is when I was in my last year of high school. And I was trying to pick a college. And obviously, I picked the right one. I've already told you that. But I was really, really strung out by this because on the one hand, I had the choice of, of Whitworth. On the other hand, I had the choice of this college out on the East Coast. And I had a whole bunch of people in my life saying, oh, Michael, go to the one out East. And oh, Michael, go to the one out West. And on top of that, there was a girl I liked who was going to the college out West. I was like, oh, man, I, God, I, I, I like this girl, but I just I don't want to make her an idol. But at the same time, I like this girl. And so I'm just like, I'm wringing my hands about this for months and months and months and months and months and months and months. And months, and months. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm worried that, well, maybe the reason I really want to go to the East Coast school is because of, you know, pride, because it's a better school, and people think I'm a cool guy if I go to this really cool school, but maybe I want to go to this school because of the girl, and oh my gosh, I'm just so confused. You know, and finally, I remember one day, I, 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 uh, I happened to be in the Chapel Hill Sanctuary, the, the lights are out, there's no one in there, I just like fall on my face, I pray to God, you know, it's like a day or two before the deadline I have to decide. I say, God, like, I, just, I don't care if I ever see her again, just, just stay, I don't want to go where you want me to go. And in that moment, I'm not much of a charismatic, but I thought I heard God say, okay, you know, you can go to Whitworth. And I did. Now, the thing is, I've looked back on that, and I still, to this day, have no idea what was actually happening there. Like, I'm still probably almost just as confused about, like, what my motives really were and what God was really saying and all that stuff. And I just want to tell you, not in any kind of flippant way, but just in, like, a, like a, a God's sovereignty kind of way, I actually don't care. Very, very often, I think the default way that we think is that like there's a plan A for my life. If I just try really hard, if I pray enough, if I read the Bible enough, if I like listen to God carefully enough, then you know I'll I'll get on plan A. And then, you know, plan A is 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 God's ideal plan, it's the best plan. And if you mess up, well, you know, there's plan B. And plan B, you know, still gets you to heaven. But oh man, you know, you are missing out. God just, you know, plan B was just like such a notch down from plan A. But that's not what this verse says. This verse says, God works all things for good for those who love God. There's not like different levels of good here. Like the good in this verse is being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. What that means is that God is able to take even our errors, even our mistakes, even our sins and work them miraculously into his plan A. And, you know, exhibit A of this is the cross. I mean, the cross is the greatest injustice and tragedy that ever happened in all of human history. And look what God brought out of that. God works all things for good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Because of that, no circumstance can separate you from his love. Verses 31 through 34. Because of God's sacrifice, no charge can separate us from God's love. So in verse 31, Paul asks the question, If God is for us, who can be against us? And it's like he's calling out to all of creation. And he's saying, if there is anyone who can stand up right now 
and lay a charge at the feet of God's beloved, may he stand. And there's silence. And Paul goes on to explain why there's silence in verses 33 through 34. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. In other words, the only one who could have accused you died for you. The only one who accused you died for you. And and, and the only one who, who could accuse you who died for you is at the right hand of the Father right now interceding for you. And that's not Jesus kind of getting down on his knees and groveling and saying, oh God, like if you're in a good mood today, would you please just forgive you know, Michael, you know, he did that sin again. He screwed up again. And, and God, God, oh, please, I, I know you like me and I like him. And would you just please, please, please? No, that's not the way intercession works. Intercession means God, Jesus simply points to justice. He says, look, like I made that payment. I mean, justice means he goes free. And if Jesus is interceding, then what that means is that God can hold on to you, even if your hands are too numb to feel them holding on to him. Man, you know, you know who figured this out was Peter. You know, Peter, who's a guy who comes before Jesus and says, even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. And what did Peter do? He denied him not once, not twice, three times. But shortly before Peter denies Jesus, shortly before Jesus goes to the cross, do you remember Luke 22? Do you remember what, what Jesus prays for Peter in Luke 22? He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. In other words, like there's an enemy who's prowling around like a roaring lion trying to snatch you up, Peter. And Jesus tells him, but I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And Peter goes on to write about this. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy has given us a new new birth through a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power to the coming of the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. And then he says, he says, that in this life you're going to face trials. These trials have come so that the, the, the proven genuineness of your faith may be, may be shown. In other words, the, the trials, they, they test your faith. They strengthen your faith. But think about this. Like, if Peter has just said that the, the way that you're, like, tethered to God, the way that you're shielded by God's power is through your faith, then if God were to put your faith through a trial, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that, you know, what happens if, if the trial's too much? What happens if I let go? But what Peter learned about this was that God never brings trials in order to break our faith, but to strengthen our faith every single time because he has prayed for us, John chapter 17, that our faith would not fail. When you cannot feel your numb fingers grasping onto God, his fingers are grasping onto you. And then finally, Paul's summary statement, no thing in all creation can separate us from God's love. Verses 37 to 39. Could someone just read those? Just stand up loud and proud. Just just read those last three verses for us, would you? 37 through 39.
Amen. Death can't separate us. Life, all its struggles, all its allurements, all of its difficulties, can't separate. Angels, demons, can't separate. If you're here tonight and you've dabbled in the occult, if you've sold your soul to the devil, Jesus plundered the devil. (laughs) Those things can't separate. The present can't separate. The future, literally anything that may, can, or will happen cannot separate. Not the height of your struggles can separate you. Not the depth of your sins can separate you. Nothing in all of creation, I mean, you are part of creation, by the way. You're not strong enough to break your own life. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise. What I want to do is I want to just close by um, just... (laughs) kind of taking all that we've looked at in these last several weeks of Romans 1 through 8, and just kind of ending with the question that Paul asks here, what shall we say in response to this? I want to ask each and every one of you to consider what you are going to say in response to this. If you are here tonight and, and you have wandered from Jesus, can I plead with you to, to, to see how much he longs to have you back. He is pursuing you, maybe even in bringing you here tonight. And if you have never met Jesus, this is the love that you've been looking for all your life. This chapter begins with the, the promise that there's no condemnation, and it ends with the promise that there is no separation. God has made us for intimacy with him. He longs to have an intimate relationship with us. And he went to the cross and he poured out his own blood to prove it. So I'm going to close here. And, and actually, um, I want to invite just one or two of you um, who are feeling, feeling bold and, and just inspired right now just to stand up um, without a microphone. I just want you to, to, just to pray out some prayers over us in light of what we've looked at tonight in this chapter. And then we're going to move small groups.